0: Greetings, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, October the 18th. I hope that you are doing well. Over these last several weeks, we've been looking at the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And we continue with that this morning as we look at chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 of Philippians. I'm reading from the NIV. The subtext here is, Do everything without grumbling. as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Let me pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be holy, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Did we catch those principles that believers are to live by? The first is found in verse 12, where Paul says that truly grateful disciples will, first of all, work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this principle can be hard to understand, so let's, let's take it apart a bit and look at the phrase the part about working out our salvation, exactly what does Paul mean with these words? Well, of course, he's not saying that we have to earn or work to earn our salvation. We know this because Paul was writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. He called them saints in the first verse of this uh, of this letter. And later in chapter 3, verse 20, he refers to them as citizens of heaven. So these people could not work for Their salvation, since they already had it. We also know this is not what Paul meant because in his other writings he so very obviously demonstrated his understanding that salvation is in fact a gift. Paul knew our salvation was not a work of mankind for God, but a work of God for mankind. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, He said very clearly, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that none of us can boast about how much we've done. So Paul realized that salvation was not a reward for the righteous, not the wages for our work, but a gift for the guilty because of the grace of God. See, salvation does not come because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done, not because of the efforts of my life, but because of his sacrifice of his death. We experience salvation, not by purifying our heart, not by perfecting our life, not by performing certain duties, not by providing certain services, but by simply believing in Jesus Christ and receiving him into our hearts into into our lives. Salvation is first and foremost a gift. We do not work to earn it. We simply receive it. But the Bible also teaches, and and Paul affirms this here, that Jesus has not graciously saved us from something in the future. He 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 also saved us for something in the here and the now. You see, eternal life in heaven is not only is not the only benefit of our salvation. So let's look at the exact meaning of the word. Work outward. And, and I think we'll see what Paul is getting at. This little word, well, it's not a little word. It's a big word that is translated from the, the Greek word, katergizamahi. And it was the same word that the Roman historian Strabo used when he gave an account of the once famous silver mines of Spain. Strabo wrote about working out these mines, meaning that The owners were to operate the mines in a manner that would grant or garner the utmost value from them. So so we have to understand the mines owners already had the mines in their possession. They owned the mines. But now they were to derive the full benefit of the ownership of those mines by working out all the ore from the various shafts, tunnels, and so forth. So this same Greek word was used in Paul's day to refer to a farmer who would be working out in, in their field in order to, to reap the greatest harvest possible. The seeds had already been planted, the crop was already growing. Now it was time to go out and harvest the crop. The farmer worked out their field so that so that they could gather a maximum harvest. So one thing Paul is saying here is that as believers, we must strive to get the greatest potential benefit from our salvation. God puts tremendous capacity for good in our lives, like the, like the motherload in a silver mine or the full field of, a ripe, of ripe crops. And he wants us, he wants you and I to realize that, capac- that capacity to its fullest. It's as if Paula was saying, hey, don't stop halfway. Don't be satisfied with partial benefits when it comes to your relationship with God. Get the full benefit of the gospel. I believe God is using Paul here to teach us that, that once we have received his gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, there is so much more for us to discover. We are to grow and to mature. We are to bring our salvation to its proper conclusion. You know, we, we may know many Christians. We may be one of these ourselves who look back on a maybe literal or figurative mountaintop experience of faith. When, when we first met Jesus and became believers— and then tragically, for many, that's it. We, we never grow from that point. But discipleship doesn't stop there. It goes on. It's not just a one-time experience, but rather a succession of forward growth. As the title of Eugene Peterson's book, using a Nietzsche quote, states, discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. The Christian life is not just a one-time experience commitment. It's an ongoing walk. And as Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. You see, God wants to continue his saving work in us every single day, refining, strengthening, making us more like into his likeness. Discipleship is a lifelong process. We never get there. So Paul urges us here, to get on with that process, to continually strive, to work out, to mine out our salvation, to mine out all the benefits that we can from it, to constantly seek to grow and to mature and to become more like Jesus. We must all strive to be better and better as we work out our salvation. We have already been granted the salvation in a split second in the, in the batting of an eye. But then the the sanctification is the rest of our life here on this earth until one day glorification. So justification, sanctification, glorification. Working it out. Note that Paul then goes on to give us a hint as to how we are to motivate ourselves to do this. Look at the next phrase in verse 12. He says we must approach the task of working out our salvation with a particular mindset, a particular attitude. We are to do this with what? Well, we're to do this with fear and trembling. I think this phrase means we are to recognize who God is and who we are. We are to acknowledge his sufficiency and our impotency and our total dependence on him. This fear he is talking about then comes from the realization that without God, we are nothing. And as Paul goes on to say in verse 13, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. In other words, he provides us with the will and the power to work out our salvation, to do anything good or true for his kingdom. There is a big difference between trying to live for Jesus and then allowing Jesus to live through us. And what Jesus wants to do is to come into our lives and help us, enable us to live out his will. He, he doesn't just ask us to do what he would do. He offers to come in and possess us so that he can enable us to do what we could never do ourselves. So then when I refuse to live in ways that please God, when, we, when I give in to temptation of sin, then I am denying the will and the power that, that God offers. What I'm saying, what we are saying is, God, thanks, but no thanks. I would rather work out the fullest benefit of the salvation you have provided through your son. And see, this is this is a major problem. And so it's and all we need to do is look in the mirror and see this problem. But but certainly we look around us and certainly in the times that we're in. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. There's no new sin uh, that we've somehow created. At the heart of it, we are still desperately trying to be our own God, to put ourselves in his rightful place, to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, and whom I want to do it with. That, that is the essence of sin. And yet here's Paul reminding us of this working out our salvation. So when we refuse to live in ways that please God, when we give into this temptation, I'm denying the will and power and strength that God offers. I'm saying, God, thanks, but no thanks. I would rather not work out the fullest benefit of the salvation you, in fact, have provided through Jesus. But, you know, this fear that Paul is talking about also comes from our realization that if, if I don't obey God, if we don't work out our salvation by living in ways that please him, we know we will grieve him. And as followers of Jesus, we love God and we want to make him him proud of us. And, you know, when we really love someone. Right. Think of your friend. Think of a spouse. Think of a child. Think of a parent. When we really love someone, we're not afraid of what that person may do to us. We are afraid of what we may do to him or her. And, and the fear of love is not that the fear that we may be punished by the other person. It is the fear that we may wound the heart of the other person. And so the fear Paul is referring to is the Christian's apprehension that by by their sinful actions, they may wound God and in essence, crucify Christ all over again. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying for the sins of all mankind. First Peter one twenty four says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Hebrews seven twenty seven says that he made this all encompassing sacrifice once and for all. That means when Jesus died, he died not only for the sins that had been committed up until that point, but also for all the future sins. Think about that. Your sins, my sins, our sins. As he hung on the cross, he felt the pain caused by our acts of rebellion against his will. Those sins that we commit even now in 2020. And when I think of that, it does cause me to fear. Paul is reminding us here that if we allow it to, this fear of disappointing, hurting God can motivate us to steer clear of sin. We can work out our salvation and experience the fullest benefits of of following Jesus when we realize what our salvation costs God and to say yes to the willpower that he himself offers. And the second way Paul says we should show our gratitude to God is by doing everything without grumbling or complaining we must not we must work out our salvation we must obey god but we must not do so with neg- with a negative attitude in other words believers christians must not be whiners when it comes to obeying a holy god now the greek word for grumbling here does not refer to some loud vocal complaining it's more of an under-the-breath kind of rumbling sound that you can hear coming from a crowd of people if everyone is doing it. A good example of this attitude from the Scripture is seen in the book of Exodus, when the people of Israel obeyed God on their desert journey, but, but they did so with with faithless murmurings and grumblings, the text says us, tells us. It's also a word that is based on the Greek word from which we get our word, dialogue. Now, dialogue in itself is not a bad thing, but the Greek word here refers to more of a disputing type of dialogue, like Satan's conversation with Eve when he suggested that God was lying to her. Paul is saying here that God, wants, that, that God does not want us to dialogue, to argue with him. He, want, <clears throat> he wants us to listen to him. And to do what he says. He wants us to obey him. But happily. He doesn't want our grudging obedience. (coughs) We work out our salvation. But we grumble and murmur. As we do so. And the worst part of this kind of behavior. Is that the world around us notices our attitude. (coughs) And as a result of noticing this attitude, they tend to perceive and perceive Christians as joyless, negative, complaining people. And no one likes to be around a grumbler or a complainer. Negativism steals joy, the joy that our world so desperately needs right now. And it also spreads and grows like a snowball rolling down a hill. What is it that's causing you to grumble, to murmur, to complain? Is it social media? Then get rid of it. Seriously, get rid of it. What is it helping you if all you're doing is grumbling and complaining? Delete it. Is it watching the news? makes me grumble. Do I really need 24-hour access to what every politician in America is doing as if they are somehow going to save me? Our salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. And how dare I try to do anything else but acknowledge that and acknowledge him? What's causing me to grumble? Negativism steals joy. And the world needs joy right now, more than ever, perhaps, certainly in our lifetimes. And this is why Christians must learn to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Charles Swindoll writes, We have no more right to put our discordant states of mind into the lives of those around us and rob them of their sunshine and brightness than we have to enter their houses and steal their silverware. Many of us must learn to pray with David that God would restore the joy of our salvation and give us a willing spirit to do his will. So in this text, Paul says we must respond to Jesus's sacrifice on our behalf by working out our salvation, obeying God happily with a joyful, positive attitude. And then he says one other thing. We must shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life. In other words, we must take every opportunity to share our faith. By the way, we could disagree with with the lyric of that old children's song, right, that says, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. It's a cute song, but it's not accurate. We're never called to be little lights in the scriptures. We are commanded to be stars. And stars may look small from our perspective, but they are not. They are huge suns, millions of miles in diameter. So in this text and others, God is calling us to be bold, blazing, light-giving stars in a world where people live in darkness. Our relationship with God and the difference he makes in our lives is not to be something we hide. We are to shine. The Bible says that, Without Christ, people are prisoners in the domain of darkness. That's Colossians 1. Without real hope in the world, that's Ephesians chapter 2. Headed for hell and judgment, that's 2 Thessalonians 1. It also says they are spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. Enemies of God and cut off from him, Colossians 1. On the outside, our lost friends, our lost community, our lost country, our lost world, whatever, may look as if it has, has it all together. But inside, people are dying spiritually. And they need the word of life that we can bring. So having experienced salvation, then, should motivate us to share the good news. So as we close, are we as close to God as as we could be? Are we getting the most out of our relationship with our holy God? Or or is there a lot of unmined potential in, in our walk, in our Christian walk? And when we feel God leading us to do something, am I obeying him with a joyful attitude? Or like many disciples, do we whine and grumble under our breath? Are we shining? Are we holding forth the word of life that the lost people around us need so desperately? We must seize every opportunity we have to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing So to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Until we're together again, may God hold us all in the hollow of his hand.